good to be with you today. We're in a series that has been entitled Moving Forward Together, and we're focusing these days on what it means to be part of a family and what good news that is and how we move forward together as part of a family. There's a great text that Andrew shared with us last week that I want to use again. It's found in Psalm chapter 71. It says, Oh God, you have taught me from my earliest childhood, and I constantly tell others about the wonderful things that you do. Notice the joy that he has as he talks about what God has done in his life and the difference it has made. And then he says, Now that I am old and gray, do not abandon me. Interesting statement. God, don't forsake me. But notice he isn't concerned about himself. His concern is that his life would continue to make a difference to the next generation. And look at what his prayer is. God, don't abandon me, but let me proclaim your power to this new generation. Your mighty miracles to all who come after me. I love that passage. No matter how old we are, we have a purpose. And that is to declare to the next generation. And I have to say, part of why this resonates so deeply with me, because I'm a dad. And I've got five kids who are part of this church family. And now it's expanded to uh, 12 grandkids and soon to be 14. And I care deeply that my children and that my grandchildren come to know and love the God that I honor and serve him. And I care deeply that we will spend all eternity together in his presence. So today's message and what I want to look at is this whole thing of what are the challenges that the next generation faces as it's growing up in the complex world that we are part of. And that we all, no matter how old we are, young or old, it doesn't matter, own the task of passing on the baton of faith to the next generation, whatever it takes. And I want to do that this morning by orienting this talk around three observations. The first observation is pretty obvious, but it's surprising how many people and even churches forget this. This is my first observation. It is up to the older generation to figure out how to own and how to pass on the baton of faith to the next generation. It is up to those who have been around a while to own the burden and task of passing our faith on to the next generation. Now, of course, we do this partly because God's just kind of hardwired that into the human species to want to watch over the next generation, to care deeply about that next generation. <laughs> I was even reminded of that when I was biking a number of years ago, and I was on the 12 Mile Creek Trail, and I came between a mother goose and her gosling on my bicycle, and that mother goose came right at me and knocked me off my bike because she was concerned about her younger uh, gosling. And that's hard, kind of hardwired. I remember when I was a kid, we didn't have seatbelts. 
And when I was driving with my mom and I was in the front seat and she would have to put the brakes on hard, automatically, what would she do? She would put her arm out to protect me from bumping my head into the windshield. Like that would do a lot of good in a bad accident, but that was just how wired we are. There's a statement, how happy is a mom? As happy as your least happy child. (laughs) Kind of a goofy story. Uh, You may not like it. Maybe it's a bit hypocritical. But I think it's kind of funny. There's this elderly couple. They're now in their mid-80s. They've been married for over 60 years. And they go to see a lawyer and tell him they want a divorce. And the lawyer says, you're in your 80s. You've been married now for over 60 years. Why would you want to get a divorce now? And their response is, well, we wanted to wait until the kids moved out of our house. (laughs) Kind of goofy, I know. But the point is, It's just kind of hardwired into the human animal. We want to watch over, protect, care, and safeguard the lives of the ones that come after us. And we want to do that around their physical (laughs) well-being. My daughter Jessica and her husband are getting major renovations done in their house. And so for the last two months, they've been living with us. And it's been interesting to watch how they are so protective and care so much. Their whole lives revolve around their one-and-a-half-year-old, Audrey, because that's kind of how they're wired. It's interesting that through the ages, what it takes to pass on spiritual life and faith changes with time. But we're given some very interesting insights in the scriptures about how we pass our faith on to the next generation. And so I want to share four um, passages of scripture Now talk about that. First of all, for Moses, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, he says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And you must commit yourselves, I love this word, wholeheartedly to those commands that I'm giving you. Because, friends, if we don't do it wholeheartedly, Our kids are going to know it. And it says, repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders and even write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. (laughs) I love that passage. We're going to come back to that. Then in Joshua makes a statement in Joshua 4. The children of Israel have just come through crossing miraculously the Jordan River. God splits the waters for them. And he has done a new thing as he brings them into the promised land. But God says to them, before you go on, I want you to stop and do something for the generations that come after you. And in Joshua 4, verse 20, look at what we read. It was there at Gilgal that Joshua piled up 12 stones taken from the Jordan River. And then Joshua said to the Israelites, in the future, your children are going to ask, what do these stones mean? And then you can tell them, this is what, where the Israelites crossed the Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the river right before your eyes, and he kept it dry until you were across. Just as he did at the Red Sea when he dried it up until we had all crossed over. He did this. Why? 
so that all nations of the earth might know that the Lord's hand is powerful and so you might fear the Lord your God forever. Very significant passage. Joshua has them erect a monument of 12 stones because he wants them to be reminded in the generations to come that God had given them the land of promise just as he had promised Abraham generations before them. And God is faithful to his promises. And they were not to forget it. And every time they saw that monument of stones, it was a reminder to them that God had dried up the Jordan River, but not only the Jordan River, the Red Sea. And this became part of the fabric of their history. You know, I think that principle is very important for us as parents, for our kids. That we have those monuments, that we have those reminders, that we create memories for them of their spiritual journey. Part of uh, when we have families dedicate their children and promise to raise their children in the way of the Lord is we suggest that they have a treasure chest. And in that treasure chest, they put all the artifacts of their child's faith journey from the time they were dedicated, from the time they were born, uh, from the time they uh, started <laughs> going to uh, the nursery, and even the papers that they bring home from Sunday school or, or maybe when they go to camp, spiritual accomplishments in their life, and that they have a record of that. And then when their children are older, maybe 16 or 18, or maybe even if they have a bar mitzvah for them, you hand them over and remind them of that faith journey and the significant milestones in that faith journey. Then there's another passage that comes out of the life of Jesus in Mark chapter 10. I love this passage. It says, one day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was going on, he was angry with his disciples. And I love what he said. He said, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. In fact, I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And then what did Jesus do? He took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on their heads and he blessed them. Isn't that a beautiful picture of how Jesus says we should pass on faith to our children by loving them, by blessing them, by encouraging them in their spiritual development. And notice Jesus was angry with his disciples because he, they didn't think he had time for the children. He had more important things to do. But Jesus said, there's nothing more important for me to do right now than to love these children and to bless them. And then there's the final passage that I want to share from 2 Timothy 1, verse 5. This is Paul speaking to Timothy. He says, I remember your genuine, I like that, genuine faith, Timothy. It's not a fake faith. This is sincere. For you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice. And I know that that same faith continues strong in you. Paul reminds Timothy that the faith that he has was passed down to him by his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. 
And that is why I remind you, verse 6, to fan into flames the spiritual gift that God has given you when I laid hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. And again, a wonderful example of the role that we parents have of passing our faith on to our children. Notice Paul doesn't say, remember uh, the faith that you learned in Sabbath school, Timothy? Uh, remember the faith that you learned at, uh, when you went to the synagogue with your parents? No, it's what the parents passed on to you. And let me just say to you that as generations come and go, that changes how we do that. I remember when I went to Sunday school, the, the way that the stories of the Bible were told was with flannel graph. I love flannel graph stories. We had such wonderful leaders telling us the stories of Jesus and the Bible and flannel graph. And remember when I came to Bethany back in 1975, one of the first things I did is I bought a whole bunch of flannel graphs so that our Sunday school teachers could teach the kids flannel graph stories of the Bible. But that soon became out of date and videos came, and there were new ways of passing on the story. And those flannel graphs aren't used anymore, and I understand that. When I grew up, I had an Eager Myers Bible storybook. I read that every night before I went to bed, and I learned the stories of the Bible. And I bought that for each one of my children to read to their stories. And I hope they're doing it, but you know what they use even more than that are what are called Odyssey tapes done by Focus on the Family. Focus on the Family does some wonderful things for, to help parents. But my kids grew up on Odyssey stories, and they learned the Bible through these Odyssey stories. And also, the neat thing about the Odyssey stories is they learned how to apply the principles of the Bible in their day-to-day -day life. And I remember many times my children talking about what they learned in, through Odyssey tapes, principles of faith, and how they would apply them in dealing with their friends. So important. Well, the methods change, and, and, you know, one of the things that has changed today is the music. Music is such an important part of worship. But the music changes with the times, and, and some people resist that. And they create, you know, we have to do the hymns of the, uh, of the past. I was at a camp speaking recently, and I had a wonderful time with the people, but we didn't sing a hymn that was more than uh, 50 years old. They were, pardon me, they were all more than 50 years old. And I remember listening to the people talking, and they came from small churches, most of them, and they said, you know, we're going to hold the old fins of the faith. We're not going to do these new hymns. And then I would ask them the question, well, do you have any young people in your church? And invariably, they would say, no, it's just older people. You know, one of the things I've noticed is that if churches don't contemporize their music, they don't keep their young people. We need to have contemporary music to speak to the culture of our day. I want to read you a quote. I want you to listen to this quote very carefully. It's a fascinating quote. It's about a person complaining about the new music of the church. This new music, it's too new. It, it's too worldly. It's even blasphemous. This new Christian music is not as pleasant as the old established music. Because there are so many new songs, you can't learn them all. It puts too much emphasis on instrumental music rather than on godly lyrics. This new music creates disturbances, making people act indecently and disorderly. The preceding generation got along well without it. This new music is a money-making scheme. Some of these new music upstarts are lewd and loose. <laughs> what a quote. Do you know when that quote was written? 
The year was 1723, and it was written by a Presbyterian minister who was upset with the new hymn book that Isaac Watts came out with. And in that hymn book, he had such outrageous songs as, Oh God, our help in ages past. And when I survey the wondrous cross, enjoy to the world. There's always been a struggle to contemporize, and sometimes we hold on to the old ways at the expense of reaching the next generation. Someone asked Charles Wesley in the late 1700s why he was writing Christian music that where the sound tunes came out of the bars, and his reply was, why should the devil get all the good tunes? And some of the songs that he wrote were, and can it be, and Christ the Lord is risen today, and oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Yes, with changing times, we need to change how we do pass the message on. This leads me to a second observation. And the second observation is this. We need to understand the growing challenges faced by the next generation. There's a very interesting verse in 1 Chronicles 12.32. It says, from the tribe of Issachar, there were 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. Notice what it says. All these men understood the signs of the time and knew the best courses, course for Israel to take. They understood the signs of the times. And as they studied the signs of the time, they determined what should be the course that they needed to take. You know, sometimes it's tempting to think that in the generation we grew up, things were harder than in the generation that we're in now. <laughs> I remember we, I lived out in the country a mile from my school, and I used to have to walk to school through two-foot snowdrifts, wind in my face, uphill, going to school and coming home. <laughs> I've noticed that that doesn't happen any, anymore. Very few children walk to school anymore. Have you noticed that? I live close to a school, and every day around 8.15 in the morning, and again around 3.15 at night, there is what I call the dance of the minivans. <laughs> There's all these minivans coming and dropping off the kids and picking up the kids, and therefore I try never to go down Lake Street at those times because the traffic is all backed up. And why is this? Why don't kids walk to school anymore? I think one of the reasons is that Moms and dads are no longer convinced that it's safe for their kids to walk alone to school. We're growing up in a different world. It's not as safe as the world that many of us grew up in. And of course, in the 1980s, there was a story of Christian French and Paul Bernardo and how he abducted her. And that was a change that happened very radical in the St. Catharines community. I want to talk a little bit more about the emerging generation that is growing up and how we need to understand some of the things uh, that are happening in that emerging generation. I think one of the things that we need to not only understand is safety and security, we need to understand the whole issue of anxiety and depression. Students today have this immense pressure from their peers and their environment and their parents to succeed at all costs. Denise Pope has written a book on, with a fascinating title, Doing School, How We Are Creating a Generation of Stressed Out, Materialistic, and Miseducated Students. 
She says, we have defined success largely in terms of compulsive achievement. Children today feel the weight of making the traveling squad in their sport, excelling in their hobby, getting the best grades, getting accepted to a good university. They have to get a top paying job and they live under this weight to such an extent that many of them are being stressed out. In fact, she cites a major study that was taking place of freshman women in a university, and she discovered that 50% of them were on medication for depression or anxiety. 50% of the women in the freshman class. Friends, that's the world in which we live in. That's the burden that our kids can carry. And then COVID has come, and COVID has certainly not made it any easier because it's created a whole new level of stress and anxiety. We need to understand that. Another important thing for us to understand is the physiological and emotional complexities of the next generation. Show of hands, how many of you enjoy going through puberty? How many of you really enjoyed it and would like to have another shot at it? I remember going through puberty and remembering, Larry, help me never to forget how hard this is and help me to understand this when I have children. Let me just say a few words on this. From a purely physiological point of view, because of advances in medicine, health, care, diet, and so on, literally, physiologically, the onset of puberty is now occurring years earlier than it was even 150 years ago in the middle of the 19th century. Not just that, kids are making life-impacting decisions that are incredibly serious about their sexuality, about birth control, about the use of alcohol, about the use of drugs. They're making those decisions, not just in high schools, but some of them are even making those decisions now before they get to high school. Decisions that used to be made at significant older ages. They are facing these decisions at a younger age than ever before. And through the media of television and movies and internet and social media and TikTok and Twitter, Our young people are being bombarded by the popular culture's idea of success and performance and appearance and belonging. They're faced with uh, this idea of what the good life is in a more pervasive way than ever before, than you and I ever experienced growing up. And I believe that they need to understand that Jesus offers us a better way that he gives us a moral compass to navigate through these tough decisions. And that's why he began his redemptive family that will provide an alternative culture, alternative ways of navigating through the complexities of the culture that has gotten so messed up apart from God. So not only is adolescence beginning at an earlier age and lasting longer than ever before, A little bit more on this. 50 years ago, on average, the average marital age was 22 for men and about 20 for women. In other words, in a few years after graduating from high school, the expectation was that folks would probably get married, 
they would enter a stable job that would run the course of their entire career, and they would begin having children. And that's where we had the TV shows like Father's Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver. But that whole era of life today between the ages of 18 and 30, which some of you are in, is now being called emerging adulthood. There's a man by the name of Christian Smith, a sociologist at Notre Dame, one of the leading experts on spirituality and students and young people in our day. He noted that due to a variety of reasons, the complexity, the challenge of entering into adulthood is now higher and therefore taking longer than ever before. Education now takes longer. Finding a career is much more complex than it ever was before. Financial pressures are now heavier. Marriage happens later, if it's going to happen at all. Spiritual journeys are now far more complex. So we are seeing these experts say the development of a whole new stage, a whole new season of life. You see, in biblical days, there was no such thing as adolescence. You basically went from being a child to an adult. You had your bar mitzvah. You were raised in your family and then you got married. The average age that women got married were 13 or 14 years of age. Men, 18 or 19 years of age. But with the rise of the Industrial Revolution came this notion of the season of adolescence. In our day, experts are saying there's a whole new developmental stage that now lasts from 18 until 30, being called emerging adulthood. And there's tons of implications to this. One of them I want you to know has to do with spiritual developments. Leaving high school now has become a whole new challenge in the spiritual arena of life. Research now indicates that somewhere between 65 and 85% of our young people drop out of church when they leave high school and when they go to university or college. They drop out of church. 65 to 85%. And let me tell you, I'm not satisfied with that. Part of that means is that we have to rethink how we're ministering to our children. Not just in terms of getting them to 18, but how we get them through this whole period of emerging adulthood. We have to ask questions of how are we passing on the baton of faith? How are we allowing them not to be just the church of tomorrow, but the church of today. Because the thing that I've noticed is when you involve young people in ministry, when you help them to understand their gifts, they take ownership. And that's why the kids' ministries that we do are so important. The summer camps that we do are so important. Because it's giving young people an opportunity to take ownership. Going to camp, I, I, I would say that the best money I ever spent on my kids was sending them to camp and they became leaders in camp and in the best way to develop your leadership gifts in your children is to give them a crash course on being a counselor at camp and all five of my daughters did that and it changed who they were not only that they're the next generation faces this whole new arena of skepticism and negativity the Barna Group has written a book called Unchristian. They've uncovered the primary association that people outside the church have with Christian in our day. 
And this has changed so much because I remember back in the 1980s, it was called the eight, the decade of the evangelicals and evangelicals were looked on with incredible favor by society. Not so anymore. How do people view Christians today from outside the church, especially the next generation? In this book, they say there's six things that people view the church today. They view Christians as being hypocritical, as being judgmental, as being homophobic, as being proselytizers who are not sensitive to others, as being out of touch with reality, and as being political in ways that are unthinking and abrasive. That's a pervasive response to Christians in our culture. Now, there's ongoing debates as to what degree uh, Christians have merited that reputation. But what is clear is that young people are growing up with increased skepticism and negativity about Christianity. And what is clear is that to follow Jesus today requires on the part of the emerging generation a level of courage and nonconformity that wasn't required of you and I. And I just want to say to the young people who are here today, under 30, following Jesus, you are my heroes. You are our hope. We honor you for your courage and your faithfulness. We cheer you on for your commitment to make a difference in the next generation. In Psalm 145, verse 4, it says, One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. That's the dream, and we can do that. And God has given us resources and peoples and gifts, and he will lead us if we will follow his leading. My third principle today is that the primary responsibility of passing the faith on to the next generation belongs to parents. It all starts in the family. The starting place is to ask God to help our entire church family become a partner with all of our families. I want to come back to a passage that we talked about before. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I love what he says here in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen, verse 4, listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God. How? Not with half of your heart, but with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. And you must commit yourself wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you. And as I said before, our kids will know if we're not doing it wholeheartedly. And we're to repeat them again and again. (laughs) We're never to give up repeating them to our children. And how are we to do it? We're to talk about them in the natural part of life, when we're at home, when we're going to the, on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up. Take all of life. I remember if I had to go to the hardware store, I would always ask one or two of my kids to go with me because I saw it as a teaching opportunity. When I would take my kids to the park and we would I'll look out over the Henley Pond, we would stop and pray and thank God for the day and the creation that he had made. We would hike all the time, especially in the spring and in the fall, and look at God's creation and thank him for the creation that he had made. Just make it a part of your life. And when you're going to bed, kids don't want to go to bed. They want to hear stories of your life. 
and when you're getting up. I love how it puts it. Tie them on your hands and wear them on your forehead as a reminder. In other words, don't forget. Even write them on the doorposts of your homes and on your gates so that when you're leaving, you're reminded. This is our job to pass on the next to the next generation. You know, we live in a day in which we, as parents, will often hire professionals to do the job. We want to teach our children to play piano. We hire a professional. We want to teach them to play tennis. We hire a professional to teach them how to play tennis. We want them to excel in math. We hire a tutor to teach them how to tutor. And sometimes in this world of experts, we as parents think that we can outsource this kind of stuff to professionals, the passing on of our faith. You know, there's a temptation to think if I drop my kids off at church, the spiritual job would get done by the professionals. <laughs> That's not what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord with all your heart. That's the Shema. That's the basic of the Hebrew faith. And parents, it's your task to pass it on to the next generation. The church can supplement it. But when you think of the time that the church has your kids, it's a very, very small time. I love at our dedication services, we give out a jar of marbles. And in that jar, there's 886 marbles, which represent the number of weeks that you as parents will have your children in your home until they turn the age 18. You've got 886 weeks, that's all. What are you doing with that? How intentional are you becoming? Sometimes parents say, well, I'm not competent. I, I don't feel adequate. There's so many things that I don't know. There's so many questions that I don't know how to answer. There's too much about the Bible that I d myself don't understand. My own spiritual life is underdeveloped. And to tell you the truth, talking to my kids about spiritual stuff seems awkward. Kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. Let me give you the best theological response that I know to that. Hogwash. Who wouldn't feel incompetent and uncomfortable talking about God? I've talked about God in most of my adult life as a pastor, and there are many times that I don't feel competent. I, 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 don't, I don't have enough faith. I'm not good enough. It's not funny, but let me tell you something. Waiting for somebody who is fully competent to proclaim God to the next generation is like waiting for the Toronto Maple Leafs to win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> Nobody knows your child like you do. Nobody can monitor your child like you do. Nobody loves your child like you do. Nobody is better on passing on the faith of God to your children than you are. You are with your children. Your children will watch you. They will watch how you spend money. They will watch how you spend your time. They will watch how you ha what hobbies you have. They will look at your justice concern for the poor. We're teaching our kids stuff all the time. We're shaping them for the better or the worse. So what we as parents need to do is to do it better. And we need to partner with the church in knowing how to do that. One of the verses that was most important to me as a parent is a verse in Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go, 
and when he is old, he will not depart from it. See the word train. It comes from a Hebrew word that is used by a midwife when the baby is first, infant is first born. They want to take that baby and put it to its mother breast, mother's breast so that it begins to drink milk. And the way they do that was they take their index finger and take a date-like substance that was tart and rub it on the palate of the infant's mouth so that it would create the sucking sensation. And then they would put it to its mother's breast. That's where the word train comes from. It means create a thirst, create an appetite in your child by the way you live. Train up a child. The word child means as long as the child is in your home, whether that child is a newborn or uh, a toddler or a teenager, in the way that he should go, literally could be translated according to their bent. I believe we as parents should be students of our child and know the bent that God has given them because every child's bent is a little bit different and cooperate with that bent. And then it says when he is old. (laughs) That doesn't mean when he's a senior citizen. Literally, the Hebrew says when he has hair in his chin. (laughs) Now, that's not for girls. It's for guys, okay? But when they reach adolescence, when they become a teenager, He will not depart from it if we do it with sensitivity. Parents, I commend you to pass your faith intentionally on to the next generation.